President Carter has arrived in Fort Wayne, Indiana for a brief... Go to America, goes Montana! He will fall in fire! Because cable's now. I think cable history is exciting, and personally, I believe this is such a wonderful industry. Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of Stories from the Head End, the Cable Center's podcast series featuring the industry's visionaries and leaders sharing their unique insights and experiences. I'm Diane Christman, Senior Vice President and Chief Program Officer of the Cable Center. This season, we're exploring the many facets of innovation within the cable broadband industry. We're presenting brand new content as well as segments curated from the collections of the Cable Center's Barco Library and the Hauser Oral and Video History Project. Our first episode of the season, Financial Leaps of Faith. The early days of the cable industry were rife with obstacles. Broadcasters wanted to control the fledgling business and lobbied heavily to throw legislative barriers up. Finding financing for the capital-intensive industry was a constant challenge. But the pioneers who built, bought, and traded cable systems during those years did so with the belief that customers would want television with good reception and the business would eventually turn a profit. Today, of course, we have many success stories of companies both large and small. In a recent interview with journalist and industry analyst Stuart Schley, Jeff DeMond, president and CEO of Vive Broadband and former president and CEO of Bresnan Communications, discusses the challenges and opportunities for innovation of his and other small and mid-sized cable companies from a financial perspective in today's volatile media environment. Thank you for tuning in and pressing play. I'm Stuart Schley for the Cable Center. And the, vo- the guitar stylings you just heard were produced live in studio by Jeff DeMond, who is our guest today. Jeff is the CEO of Vive Broadband and a veteran of the cable industry, if we can still call it the cable industry for purposes of this discussion, maybe. Maybe. So, so still there. Um, thrilled to have you in. Thanks for sharing your musical talents. You were in a band uh, earlier in your life. Talk about that. Hmm. Okay, well... Um, I grew up with my grandfather, who was the staff guitarist for CBS and Columbia Ra- uh, Records and Radio uh, back in the 20s and 30s. And so he was my uh, guitar teacher, mentor, and best friend, I should add, most of my young life. Uh, he died when I was in college, but I began playing guitar at age five or six and have been doing so virtually every day since. I won't tell you how many years that is. You grew up where? Uh, in Morristown, New Jersey, originally. And uh, he worked in the city, of course, um, uh, much of his career. But that got me launched. So I played in bands, you know, throughout high school. Um, 
1969, I moved to Alabama. Uh, in 19, well, I'll date myself now. In 1969, I moved to Alabama when my mother remarried and business moved down there and that sort of thing. So my second life began uh, as a resident of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, around the, which is a, a college town, a very vibrant uh, university setting. So I played through college. Um, but in high school, I was very active uh, playing guitar around the region and got to be pretty well known. So I, I was invited to join a band at the end of my freshman year in college, uh, a band that had just had a gold record and their lead guitar player was going to, uh, he'd been offered an opportunity to be the staff guitarist at Muscle Shoals Sound, a famous oh recording goodness. studio. Right. And uh, we would all covet that invitation and he did and took it. So he said, would you like to join the band? And I said, well, I'm 18. I'm at the end of my freshman year of college and you're asking me if I'd like to ask my parents if I can <laughs> quit school and uh, tour the band. And of course I said, yes. And they were fine. And I did that for about 18 months. Um, timing being what it was, the record industry actually collapsed during that 18 months. And so we were, uh, we lost our record deal. But we did record an album. And we toured with lots and lots of big name people. Um, uh, we did the early stages of the Peter Frampton, Frampton Comes Alive the tour. Frampton Comes Alive. Number Journey. one live album in history yeah. for many years. Um, and people like that, Allman Brothers, um, Atlanta Rhythm Section, regional, Southeastern Regional Bands, um, the Guess Who, we did some shows across Canada with them. They were a Canadian-based band. Uh, all kinds of people. Yeah, your band was what? What was the name of the band? It was called Sailcat. Okay. And uh, that name came from a Jonathan Winters comedy routine about cats that were run over on the highway and dried and then you could get them up like a, with a spatula and fly them like a frisbee. I know that's tasteless, but that's where it came from. It, wor it works. There's actually a segue <laughs> ahead here and I'll, I'll bring it to you, but the Frampton Comes Alive album was a soundtrack of my youth. I remember a summer to date myself, I was in high school and you would literally go from a friend's house to a swimming pool to a party and that album would carry through the whole way. It was... Not to be crass, it was sort of our Sergeant Peppers yeah, know, at, at, yeah. at that time. And <clears throat> it created this communal feeling, um, feeling of community around media that I fear we've a little bit lost in our society today. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think about what you're doing with your company in terms of, of creating and sustaining a local presence uh, with a communications medium that's really important, particularly in rural America. So talk about Vive Broadband and who you are, where you are, and what you do. Sure. Um well, we started in 2013, really. Um, we operate in eight states, Wyoming, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Arkansas, uh, Tennessee, Louisiana, and Georgia. You got eight. I hope that's eight. Yep. Um, and it was really the outgrowth of buying two companies that had been bankrupted and left sort of in decay for some time. Um, but it was an opportunity for us to go back into business, the core group that had come out of Bresnan Communications. And um, after we got started, uh, others joined the team from other companies. Uh, but that was our sort of nucleus. And we have 30 years plus experience in rural America. Mm -hmm. And although we've operated in large cities and other countries, um, rural America felt sort of like home to this team and coming up under Bill Bresnan and we could talk about that a little bit but um, that sort of gave us our 
uh, core DNA in, in rural America. So we so we had an investment thesis. Um, we believed that there'd be continuing uh, growing demand for broadband speeds and bandwidth, basically, uh, that rural markets were underserved and would likely continue to be underserved for a while, and that an aggressive investment in those kinds of communities uh, in upgrading and rebuilding them and bringing the latest technologies to rural America would result in competitive products and services. I mean, that was kind of our thesis. So, <clears throat> excuse me, we, we thought that given the consolidation in the industry, um, this was a place for us to play. It's our fifth company mm -hmm. together. Um, it was sort of a niche opportunity. We had a good buy-in price because of the condition of the companies. That was an important driver. Uh, the opportunity existed, so that was an important driver. Uh, and Brown Brothers, Harriman Capital Partners, um, people that I've known for 30 years, I guess, um, as a private equity firm, wanted to back us in doing something. So we looked at this project together. And there's a lot to unpack there, but I mm -hmm. wanted to make sure, was it the heritage of the Bresnan companies over time, with the exception of the international operations, a, a rural market profile? <clears throat> uh, primarily, um, I met Bill when he was at Westinghouse planning to start his own company. Um, that was he was running tele teleprompter. He was right? running, at that time, Group W Cable, Group which w had been cable. acquired by teleprompter. I mean, sorry, teleprompter had been acquired yeah. by Group W. Yeah. And um, coincidentally, when I was in Alabama, I used to write my cable check to teleprompter. So I was paying Bill Bresnan my cable bill, and some years later, uh, met him. And... Um, and I was working at the time at, I'd gotten out of college and I'd gone into um, the accounting world in New York City. So I moved to New York and was at KP, what's now KPMG uh, for seven years. And that's how I made the connection with Bill. He was looking for a finance person. We had some common uh, friends who introduced us. And um, about a year later, I joined him. Uh, what about Bill made a convincing story. I mean, this was not by any means a, a certain career move. You took some risk. Uh, yeah, I was probably a couple of years from partner at KPMG, which was a career opportunity. Um, having been a guitar player rather than an accountant at my core, um, I was happy that this happened fortuitously. Um, I met Bill, and he, he impressed me immediately. He was uh, an extremely gracious, fun-loving, easy-to-speak-with sort of guy. Very polished and professional, and yet big rosy cheeks, told a, told a great joke and had a hearty laugh and was very welcoming, and literally immediately said, do you want to come work with me? And it sort of caught me off guard, frankly, and I said, I have to think about it. And uh, it took me about 11 months to answer him. I mean, okay. Ultimately, okay. Uh, and I called him and said, "Did you launch your company? Did you get it done?" He said, "Yes." And I said, "Well, it, could we renew that conversation?" He said, "Sure, perfect timing." You joined as director of finance. Was that yeah, right? I think that was the title. You ultimately They're rose to very CFO small team at that time, and yeah. yeah, yeah. And just over the course of time, we built an accounting function and finance function uh, in the company. But it was to your original question. It was based in the Great Lakes area, in rural communities in Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota. And we um, refer back to that as Bresnan One, okay. uh, which had the longest life and was the largest of all our companies. It, it went from 1985 until 
Uh, it was ultimately sold in 2000 to, uh, to Charter. You were over a million subscribers at the sale? Uh, from 95 to 99, we actually had two other partnerships. Um, all three of them, by the way, were in partnership with TCI. Okay. The uh, Bresnan one, as I described it, um, was a full partnership with TCI developing domestic cable. Um, the other two we brought to John Malone. Um, Bill and I used to go out and visit with Malone on a regular basis, which was always fabulously uh, informative and exhilarating, I might add, not to be sort of overboard with it. But we always left saying we should do this more often. We always learn something. We always benefit from it. And we brought two project ideas to John. Um, one was to build um, markets, actually buy and assemble and build uh, markets in Poland. And the other was um, an opportunity to invest and build the major markets and minor markets in Chile. Okay. So... At one sitting, we shook hands with John, and he committed what amounted to $100 million of equity, roughly, um, through TCI International, which ultimately became Liberty, right. um, through all the ins and outs of that evolution. Uh, and we went to work, and we built two really nice companies there. Um, Poland uh, happened... Uh, Timing-wise, at the same time that TCI was investing aggressively in Argentina right next door. And so over time, they had such a large infrastructure there that it made more sense for us to flip our interest in Poland to them. Okay. Uh, sorry, Chile. Chile sorry. and Argentina. Chile. Yeah. Uh, for the, flip our interest in Chile, rather, for a larger interest in our Poland partnership. Okay. And we ultimately sold uh, our Poland company to a public company in Poland in 99. So... At the period that we operated all three, we were over a million subscribers. Did you have, long answer to your short? Question. No, it's a good. It's a good answer. I think they. I think Liberty Global still has Chile. Um, they do. As one of their properties. In fact, maybe coincidentally, but I feel good about this anyway. Um, John indirectly or directly owns everything we've ever built, by virtue of the fact that he's now investing with uh, the folks at Charter with Tom Rutledge and his pretty team. good endorsement there. And they've acquired our first company and then reacquired uh, what we sold to Cablevision when they were there. So all of that and whatever they still own in Poland and Chile all are under the uh, the, the Malone the The banner. orbit. The orbit. The orbit. So the orbit. Uh, what about the business did you come to love? I mean, what, what was it about cable that you thought made it uh, worth devoting your professional career <clears> to? Hmm, that's a very good question. Uh, that's what I do. Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't think it was the industry, though the industry's great and collegial, and maybe that really is part of the answer, that it was not particularly competitive between the various members uh, or among all the members not of like the industry. Not like a banking industry model where right. everybody's out after the same account. Correct. Yeah. So when we get together... For industry functions, it's very collegial. There, there isn't that sort of overhang of, I have to be careful, this is my competitor mm. at the table. So that was interesting. Um, I think more than that, and most importantly, it was probably Bill Bresnan. Um, it was the relationship, for me personally at least, it was the relationship I had with him. He was uh, a mentor, a business partner, a father figure in some respects. Mm. Um, 
a, a friend and confidant. I mean, my wife would tell you, she, she would call me at the end of the day and say, are you in a meeting with Jack? And I'd say, yes, I'll call you back in a little bit or we'll have dinner late or something. Her question was, are you and Bill having a glass of Jack Daniels and discussing whatever the important things of the day? She was on to you pretty, pretty early. But yeah. you kept up the, the verve and the love um, after Bill's passing. And when you started yes. Vibe, this is what interests me, is yeah. it's like you didn't get the memo because it was supposed to be that the industry had to consolidate and achieve this tremendous right. scale, regionally cluster. And here you are convincing investment partners and, and your own team to roll the dice on rural cable. Yeah. Why? Well, um, going back to what I said a few minutes ago about the opportunity, you know, it presented itself. We had financial backers that, you know, frankly hadn't played in a lot of the prior cable deals because they were so big. So um, partly because, they're, 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 as they say in the, in the uh, private equity industry, the check size was different. Uh, and so we had a deal that was sized properly for the people that wanted to come together. Um, we had banking support um, th that would allow us to get it done, which is part of the formula. And we had a team that liked working together. So even though they had gone to various companies through our prior acquisitions, um, some of them had gone to Cablevision, for example, recent, in our most recent sale. Some were at Charter, some were at other places. Um, but as has happened several times over the last 30 years, when we sort of blew the horn and said, would anybody like to come do this? Uh, it's a great offer. You can work for half of whatever you're being paid now. <laughs> and you can Terrific. work twice the hours right. and, and build a new company again. And people bought into it. People bought into it. And we've had a good time over the years doing it. It's, it's much harder today, I will say. You, you talked about these being a lot of underserved communities. What does underserved mm -hmm. mean in terms of video, broadband, other communications services? Um, well, when we arrived in these communities with these properties, for example, they were all separate, standalone, um, traditional cable systems in small communities that hadn't been invested in in quite a while. Mm -hmm. um, by virtue of just sort of the nature of these communities, other providers hadn't invested much either. So if that... For example, okay. if we were in an AT&T market, it was still fairly old DSL. Mm -hmm. um, of course, the, the dish competition from both providers was ubiquitous as it is everywhere. Right. But sort of the facilities-based providers, um, you know, their, their first dollar of capital doesn't go to the smallest community they have. Right. And so I, I think it's fair to say the larger you are, uh, the greater number of priorities you have for capital allocation ahead of these communities. Okay. For us, this is priority number one. Yeah. So we had to come together around this investment thesis and, and sort of strike agreement among ourselves that this was a good use of capital and that we could, we could do something here. And to do that, we built a 550-mile fiber ring in Oklahoma and interconnected many of these markets. What did that, what did that do for you? What, why? It allowed us to eliminate, um, for the most part, head ends and provide uh, continuous, ultimately redundant connectivity. Uh, basically, it built a core network throughout the footprint that interconnected all these markets. 
It also ultimately allowed us to build a master video head end in Shawnee, Oklahoma, that serves virtually our whole footprint. Okay. <clears throat> we went in knowing that we had to go as state-of-the-art as we could reasonably justify, so we, this is maybe the, we're in acronym land for a second, yeah, but right. MPEG for all digital, um, we needed to recapture as much bandwidth as possible on limited uh, amounts of network capacity in some of these smaller markets. Um, and all of this was geared toward providing the greatest speed and bandwidth for high-speed data residentially and commercially as we could possibly provide. Because you, you had your own broadband from the very start uh, as, a, as the key revenue source? We did. We, we focused on, I guess when you think about your investment thesis, you step back and say, where is everything going? Which yeah. you know wasn't exactly what cable was all about for years. It was sort of automatically... We knew what it was. We knew what it was. We knew what would happen, yeah. um, and it was eminently planable. Yeah. Um, this was a little different. Uh, we had to look and say, what's the most important aspect of the networks and infrastructure that we invest in in these communities to be where they need to be in five years and to provide the services and, and products that these communities will not only expect but demand in five years? And... More video didn't sound like the answer. Um, there was more and more video available from multiple sources already. Um, trying to build a video business, you know, in the shadow of DirecTV, for example. Which was already present. Which was already present. Right. And very highly penetrated, by the way, because our predecessor hadn't invested in their business in a long time. So we, we felt immediately uh, strongly about a couple of things. One was this growing bandwidth demand was going to require us to create the biggest possible pipe um, and all the things that, that follow from that. Mm -hmm. um, that we do it quickly also because the growth curve in, in uh, bandwidth consumption was pretty steep. So we believed that two or three years from our start date, we sort of had to create supply that would cross the okay, demand line, the if you think about going. that. And, and remind me, when, what was mm -hmm. the start date? When, when were you in the market with your system? Uh, we bought the two companies a few months apart in 2013. Okay. Um, we started immediately to rebuild and transform them and build uh, that fiber ring. In 2014, we went through the process of developing a, a brand so that originally we were sort of an you know, invisibly known as BCI Broadband, an innocuous name that no, nobody paid attention to. And we, and we were fine with that because right. we were the new game in town, but we didn't have anything better to offer yet, right? So we aggressively went in and cleaned things up, transformed the, the, the offices, the people, the networks, invested a lot of capital. Um, and in 2014, we, we sort of, went through this brand exercise and said, what do we want to be when we are that thing two uh -huh. years from now that, that needs to emerge, like from a cocoon? And we settled on Vive Broadband. Broadband was purposeful. Vive was because we wanted to be next generation, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. Less industrial, hipper, we have an interesting logo. If you really look at it, you can read all kinds of things into it. It looks like our brand is a reflection off one lens of a pair of aviator sunglasses. Cool. Um, it's just a... I like the typography of the V and the Y sort of inverted. It's a neat, just 
I like type and design. So yeah, that's kind of cool. it's yeah. you know we we sort of all fell in love with the idea of it and uh, launched that in fourteen. So to your question, acquired in thirteen, began construction, quietly started working on the brand in fourteen, finished construction in early sixteen, mm-hmm. and then pivoted the company to sales and marketing from construction. So for the first three years we were virtually a construction company. How did you deal with that issue of the the actual word cable, the semantics of cable? Did you just discard it right off the bat, or what was your thinking? No, no. Um, you know, we we all debate that. I'm on the board of NCTA. We debate it there. Um, we debate debated at the cable center, and every, every industry organization goes through this head scratching process of where is cable? Is it a viable word and, and concept? Um, yeah, I, I think at this point it still is. I mean, we we we're all still committed to it in some you know way, shape, or form. Uh, we purposely used broadband and not communications and not cable really because we were building a broadband network to provide bandwidth and speed, and that's the way people talked about it at that time. And, and the existence, it was, it, it was, you were six years after Netflix first haltingly put streams of video out onto the, to the network, and by mm-hmm. 2000, by this era, uh, the internet video revolution was in full swing. So mm-hmm. did it scare you? Did it alarm you? Did you see one of your core revenue sources being compromised? Well... When you start with something that's not in stellar condition, you have the luxury of making some interesting decisions. Right. <laughs> so, how's that for a, a sideways I, way to address the question? No, I, I um, think it's the the situation you 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 went win with eyes wide open. I think, yes, into the we did change in video mode, and we had to make decisions about how much and what type of capital we would even including set top boxes and, and everything right. to provide video. So. We decided that video was going to be a secondary product. Um, one, a lot of the customer base had gone to a dish provider uh, in, right. a, you know, in their predecessor companies. Uh, so we focused on broadband, and we focused on the customer base that we inherited. Okay. And we realized we had to do something really important. And this happened, but it's virtually invisible to the outside. The customers and employees that are still there in companies that have been in bankruptcy for a couple of years are the people that um, are satisfied with a very modest Mm -hmm. product offering. And they're the employees that largely weren't motivated to leave. Now, I don't mean to be unfair to anybody. And we still have some very good employees that came from that period. But largely speaking, they weren't used to having any capital or hope or energy around their business because it wasn't provided to them. So we came in and said, here's the way we do it. High energy, Mm -hmm. lots of hard work. We commit and double and triple commit to our community. So local presence is really important. Customer service is really important. Investment in the community, not just in our assets, but in theirs is really important, all on a very limited budget. So. It takes a lot of thought, hard work, and efficient operating to, to do it. Did you, did you spend time in the markets? Did you personally come and address employees yeah. and that sort of thing? We did. Um, in uh, the case of our first uh, acquisition, we got the whole leadership team, and that went pretty deep, and it wasn't that big a company, uh, all to sit in a, in a conference room. And I remember I had virtually this conversation and said, you know, we're excited to have you. We're excited to be in these communities but we're going to push the pedal to the floor 
And it's not going to be for everybody in this room, Okay, I suspect. If it is, we're all thrilled. It's a big change. But it's a big change. Yeah. And um, I remember after that meeting, and it was very cordial and upbeat and friendly, but I did sort of take away that there was one person out of about 17 or 18 that I could see got it. Really? Really? And she stayed with the company for a number of years after that. But so for you're, you're transforming didn't. The, not only the people base, but the culture around the company. Yeah. Pretty, pretty big time. Pretty big time. Yeah. Um, you talked about investment thesis. What had to happen at the customer level for you to make your numbers? Was there an, we use this term ARPU in the industry, but was there mm -hmm. a monthly spend amount and how was it allocated among broadband and phone and uh, video for you guys? Well, the important thing I, I alluded to a second ago was this customer base we inherited. Mm -hmm. Highly, highly video centric. So many video only customers. Okay. Interestingly. Yeah. Um, there was some broadband, but of course they weren't offering a very robust product when we stepped into this. They did this. have a, an internet connectivity. They did, program. but it was very slow. Okay. Just yeah. what, what you might expect. If, <laughs> um, I remember it, the days. It competed with dial-up and, and sort of low-speed DSL mm -hmm. and competed okay. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. Okay. So we, we knew that we had a customer base that was um, not necessarily the person that we would be able to successfully market to in the future. I don't know how else to put that, but you can... I think that was very delicate, and um, I hear what you're saying. So we, over time, we focused a lot of attention, particularly from 2016 on, uh, on credit standards mm -hmm. and making sure that we were attracting the customer of the future and retaining the customer that we had who wanted to be there in the future. Okay. So we had to provide the products and services and the quality of customer care and all that that they deserved and demanded while we repositioned, repriced, repackaged all of our products and put them out with this new Vive label on it mm -hmm. uh, and started to really crank up our physical presence in the markets, you know, our marketing presence and our um, public relations presence right. and that sort of thing. And over time... Our customer base went from largely video only. Who are paying $30, $40 a month? Or? Uh, challenging my memory now on that. But, but not, I mean, these weren't they, they weren't $100 huge. customers. No, no. no. Yeah. Uh, there's quite a natural barrier at $100, interestingly, which is not true in bigger markets. Um, we've known that for some time in the rural market. But um, anyway, the, the important point is the broadband-only customers, the high-speed data-only customers now in our customer base are about 60%. So if you think of it yeah. as a sort of a bar chart, the video onlys went, you know, high on the bar down to very low in the bar. And the broadband customers went from low to very high and they're growing like mad. So that's the residential picture. And right. in, the, in the backdrop of that, we built this very robust network. We interconnected it with four large data centers in Tulsa, Oklahoma City, Dallas, and Atlanta. Okay. So we are fully connected, you know, across the country the way any large operator would be. And we can hand off traffic to each other and whatever. That was largely done to support our commercial business, which during the Bresnan era, we had sort of been recognized for that um, repeatedly, building a uh, a healthy and growing commercial business yes, on our platforms. You're, you're rural, but like any business, 
these businesses have to be connected all the time to run. Not only that, but they may be located in a rural community, but they have the sort of demands and needs of a major market right. company, whatever industry they're in. They still need lots of high-speed bandwidth for their internet connectivity and whatnot. Um, we sell hosted voice service. We, you know, it's all modern um, commercial services Not geared to commercial customers. Not you wouldn't have available in Chicago or Milwaukee or Correct. Tampa, Florida, right. I presume. And we can sell that outside our franchised cable footprint. So okay. um, we're, we're also cognizant of the fact that our commercial business is carrying um, a large part of the responsibility to return, uh, create a return on the investment we've made in this network. So we are building that business very aggressively. You, you talk about it, and it seems so logical and so straightforward. So I'm in. Like, mm-hmm. if you need an investor, we'll scrape some money together. But... Did you have the sleepless nights? Did were there times when it you you know is this going to work sort of thing? N- not in that sense. We we had um, a number of occasions during construction, for example, where we were building this five hundred fifty mile ring, and we had to cross a bridge or go through a tunnel. Mm. And in order to get that permitted, we had to deal with the Army Corps of Engineers, okay. for example, or the Department of the Interior. Somebody who owns or, that right or easement or correct. path. Correct. Someone that had to approve that for whatever reason. Okay. Um, they didn't have to do engineering, though they had to evaluate. In the case of the Army Corps, they evaluate your engineering plan. They literally had to just respond to our presentation and approve it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in two or three cases that I can quickly recall, that took more than a year. Okay. So it was frustrating for us to have spent all this time, energy, and capital building this ring that would connect everything and not be able to close it. Right. Eventually you got there. We, eventually we did, but it took a bit longer, and that was frustrating. I want to I uh, mine the video subject just mm-hmm. a little bit more. You have a, a slogan or a note on your website that says, Vive now offers industry-leading speeds of up to one gigabit in select markets. And then it says, Netflix, Hulu, YouTube, and Amazon users rejoice. <clears throat> so that's an interesting line from a cable company. Well, that goes a little bit to the question of, you know, how do you innovate as a small operator in rural communities? So if you're Comcast, you develop this X1 platform, if you're familiar with their platform, and it's fabulous. I'm a, I'm a customer in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. Um, very, very you know, robust is an overused word, but I mean, it just does everything you would want it to do and more. And it works very well. Um, We don't have the resources to do that. But what we have launched is something we call Extreme TV, X dash, and the word stream, like streaming. Mm -hmm. Extreme TV is basically a hybrid uh, box that combines linear cable TV that you would expect your set-top box to deliver alongside... Netflix, Netflix, Hulu, and, okay. and others, so that for the customer that wants an uncomplicated way to merge their over-the-top streaming services with their linear television, without buying my Roku box or my Apple, no TV. Roku, no yeah. changing inputs, and you know, yeah, it's great. Call in mom and dad. Where's the <laughs> remote, and do you know how to use it, <laughs> and all of that. Been there. Um, so for 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 the base that wants that product, we have a really really nice product, and we. From a marketing point of view, we, we couple that with 50 megabit service to the home. So if you want this, 
you package it as a double play product, video and band, and video and broadband, um, with a 50 megabit speed product, and we offer a terabyte of bandwidth with a, you know, virtually all of our products or more at the very highest end. That's a, a monthly uh, allowance. allowance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Terabyte, and it's uh, a lot. It's a lot, and they. This provides a real product for someone who wants to both stream video and have you know a, a high speed internet experience in their house. And what what's the performance? How's it working from a penetration or a market standpoint? It's great. We it, in our markets, one of the things you suffer in being bedroom communities to larger markets is you don't have over the air broadcasting uh, advertising capability. Oh right. So for example, in Shawnee, Oklahoma. Well, about 50% of our customers are in the, our uh, Oklahoma-Texas region. Okay. And that largely uh, uh, sort of rings Oklahoma City and Tulsa, and those are Cox markets. And we do business together, and we trade off traffic, and we, you know, we're pretty high-tech about how we operate in the area. But one of the things we can't do um, without irritating them and wasting a lot of our marketing resources is advertise on Oklahoma City stations to reach Shawnee Right for because we waste ninety cents on a dollar or ninety five cents on a dollar. It's a product that's not available to most of those not available viewers. Okay, so we have to spend a lot to get a little. Okay, and it's okay. just noise in Oklahoma City, so it doesn't help Cox particularly okay. either. <laughs> well, this is the the cable conundrum, right? The patchwork right. nature of the business. Does it worry you, or do you do you care somewhere in your long term projection if video goes away as a revenue source? Is that uh, you know, homicidal for for the industry? Uh, I don't think it is, but I also don't think it'll happen. Why? why um, well, we're in a, I think we're in a transitional stage, you know, obviously I could be, um, a little wrong or a lot wrong on this point, but, um, you see a lot of people experimenting with over the top and virtual and PVD type, uh, services, but I mean, it didn't take 12 months for people to start to talk about when I stacked the ones that I want. I'm right. paying as much as I was paying before. Right. So right. Um, I think there's a reasonable chance that for some segment of the video consuming population, they will say, this really isn't worth it. Mm-hmm. It's, I have to write, you know, five checks or I have five companies with my credit card. I, I could just go back to cable and get that and get discounts to add it to my internet service and my voice service and whatever else we're offering that's, at the time. That's what I think is interesting about your company and some of your smaller market peers mm-hmm. is you're sort of ahead of the bigger, broader industry in figuring out ways to play nice with, with digital and over-the-top video. And not only is the expense high when you, when you rack up multiple services, but sometimes it doesn't work, right? So there's this convenience and certainty factor, mm-hmm. I think is an advantage for cable. Well, we certainly think that, um, but you know we have to be careful we don't inhale our own smoke. So we do step back okay. and really try to think about this on a continuous basis. Um, but I mean, in answer to your question, I think we planned for video to be a declining, yeah, uh, or at least smaller part of our business. Um, it's quite public that we we make no bones about passing on the content cost to our customers. Right. If you appreciate the product that we have, and especially this extreme TV product, uh, our high-speed data product, which is not rivaled by anyone in any of our markets yeah. uh, at this point, um, and 
you like the local customer service and you can get a tech out to your house and, you know, all the usual things that being a local provider, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, benefits that it gives us and our customers, um, then they will take a video product from us. And that's great. Yeah. And we welcome it. Yeah. And we try to price it as competitively as we can, but we pass through retransmission consent fees and regional sports network fees and everything. If it goes up a dollar or $5, that's what it goes up. And we don't absorb that. We don't subsidize it because right. fundamentally high speed residential high speed data and commercial revenue are our two core areas okay. of focus. And we know that that's, yeah. we know what it will take to be successful in our business. And that's, our business is you mentioned the local feet on the street, if you will. It, mm-hmm. it, is that a sort of a secret weapon, or maybe not so secret weapon that the cable industry possesses? Well, we think so. I mean, uh, going back to the first days of Bresnan and continuing, you know, on steroids in our company today at Vive, um, being a local community partner and being highly visible and present uh, is really important. We believe it's very important, and we and we devote a lot of time. Our marketing team, led by Diane Quino, spends more time than you could imagine developing the things, you know, products, promotions, events, right. um, all kinds of materials. I mean, to give you an example, um, they launched. Uh, I like to give them credit for this because uh-huh. they, they've conjured all these things up. Um, five teacher of the month. So we celebrate teachers in every one of our communities every month and mm-hmm. we choose a winner. We provide, uh, you know, an app, an apple, like a trophy apple. Um, they get a lot of publicity in the papers, yeah. cover it and everything. Um, but what we're trying to do is is point out that schools and teachers and students and parents are all in this together yeah. and we are a good corporate partner uh, and citizen in that community, and we want them to know the importance of the teachers that teach their children. So we celebrate teachers, and they're voted on by the students and the and okay. their colleagues. So okay. we we it's all not we, Diane choosing the no no we don't we don't choose yeah. them, but we but our people do go out and and give the awards out. We also have things things that just delight people randomly. So we have a thing called random acts of viveness. Good. And we just empower our people to just go to a Dunkin' Donuts or a local cafe or a barbecue shop and buy everybody lunch that's in there. Nice. Yeah. Just random things. And why is it important? And is it is it I don't know even more important in a in a smaller rural community to have those local connections? In your judgment, you've you've operated systems mm-hmm. in Boland and a lot of different places. Well, if you're operating as we were at one point, Warsaw, and Santiago, and small communities in Michigan. Um, I can say that they all, being part of the community is important in all three of those places. Right. But your ability to stand out and really be considered a local operator is greatest in those small communities. So we know that to be competitive in our general footprint, sort of regionally, um, we have to be viewed by our potential customers as a good local provider okay. uh, who cares about the community as well as just the products and services that we sell to them. Um, so it's been important to us. Within this framework, you identified where commercial and uh, residential broadband are, are keys to the business going mm-hmm. forward. 
and without giving away the the five year plan or the secret sauce, where where is the business going? I mean, what what other innovations or investments do you see over the longer term horizon? Uh, I'm sure there will be certainly others. Um, the whole Internet of Things, for for lack of a, yeah. a less worn out term already. Um, there's just going to be a, an incredible amount of bandwidth consumption going forward and how to manage that or and privacy issues. And is it, is it a commercial play more so than a residential or do you see the talking refrigerator being, you know, part of your network connection? Uh, I think it's the both. Intelligent I mean, a good example, I'm a, as I mentioned, a Comcast customer in Florida and I had an unfortunate outage uh, situation. So, it, it wasn't that my internet went out, which was catastrophic enough, because we live, you know, indeed, uh, live on that. But my ring doorbell didn't yes. work. My alarm system was off. You forget how my thermostats were down. Right. My thermostats in Connecticut that I look at from Florida to make sure that I don't have pipes freezing mm-hmm. were gone. Um, not Comcast's fault, but just an example that. When you're a local provider and you're providing all those kinds of services indirectly, yeah, you have to be really focused on reliability and what the customer's experience is, for good or bad. Uh, so that's driving, you know, some of the innovation. I think uh, okay. you see now for us, you know, we like to say we're fast followers. We don't have an R and D budget like Comcast or Charter or others, mm-hmm. but. Um, we benefit from the things that are developed. We're a member of Cable Labs. We, you know, certainly participate in the things that the industry's uh, doing. Um, but we have to be careful about the timing and the applicability mm-hmm. of what we launch because we can't be wrong. Uh, so we follow, uh, but we follow quickly. I wanted to talk to you about the industry, uh, state of the industry, because um, you've been involved uh, with NCTA. Um, you've been in the industry for a long time. And you talked at the outset about the camaraderie that exists between mm-hmm. companies that largely don't pursue each other's customers. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you see that changing as a, as a cable industry executive? Do you see the day when a large cable company feels like it has no choice except to begin to sell, for instance, an, an over-the-top video service in another market? Or do you even think about it? Uh, well, we, I think everyone thinks about it. I personally believe it's happening um, certainly starting to happen in some mm-hmm. respects, right? Uh, and you'll see operators move into other markets. See it in commercial a little you know, bit. Opportunistically. Yeah. I think there's a little bit at the margins. Even even in our company, we you know, we are built into Tulsa. Um, Cox is an operator in Tulsa. We hand off traffic. If Cox has a customer that has, uh, say it's a bank and it has branches in our part of the footprint, sure they'll hand some of that business off to us and we'll provide the yeah. service to, you know, and, and vice versa. So, but there are cases where they'll come and, and build out farther to reach some of those customers mm-hmm. that they need to. So, yeah. there's a, you know, that's marginal stuff at this at, at this point. But fundamentally, you're still, the, the huge embedded advantage is you, you own these networks, you, the, you being collectively the cable industry. Yes. And it took a lot of, Effort and investment and pole climbing and, you know, attaching yeah. of F connectors to get to that point. Right. Yeah. Well, and we, uh, we know that there's, particularly in rural America, there's a wireless industry um, that is opportunistically 
partly because of the development of better equipment mm -hmm. recently, technology is improving. Um, they are capturing some of this business uh, that's sort of just outside the footprints of the cable operators. Okay. And so just as one example, we launched Vive Wireless a month ago, oh. actually. And uh, on the theory that it's better to have your cannons pointed out than someone else's <laughs> pointed in. Right. Uh, but also opportunistically, you know, we think it, one, it protects the perimeter of our footprint. So we always think about how do we protect our, our you, business. You'd rather have that customer take a wireless service from you yes. than an outside, an outsider. Yes, okay. correct. Okay. And, you know, there's no magic border if they point inward. If they have a growing business around the edges, there's no place to go but in. Right. Um, we'd prefer to make that not attractive because we offer that service already. And we have all the efficiencies of having the infrastructure, administrative, billing, customer care. We already have all that. So is it, it's early, I get that, but is it is it in a bundle at this point? Do you have wireless as a component of a quad play or how do you uh, do it? It's focused at the moment, again, on residential high-speed data. Okay. You know, that's the thrust of it. Um, but, you know, we're still sort of in the experimenting stage. Okay. Uh, it's really just launched, and we'll see where it goes. Jeff, are you interested in growing by acquisition? I mean, you've made a lot of deals in your career. So yeah. So how does that outlook strike you? Um, we look uh, all the time at anything, you know, that where there's an opportunity. But there hasn't been a lot of high-quality Okay. Um, you know, a large number of high-quality assets available to buy. Okay. Um, and things that would make sense for us. You know, just a small community in California doesn't really do us a lot doesn't of good. Doesn't sort of fit. Right. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be perfectly geographically, uh, you know, sort of contiguous. But, um, but the short answer is yes. We have the financial wherewithal and support okay. to grow, you know, substantially larger than we are, certainly. Well, that, I think part of the Vive story and the broader, um, not to disparage, tier two cable market story is that there is investment interests and mm -hmm. capital that's willing to go there, right? I mean, there's confidence in the investment community. Yeah. Um, wh where does that come from or what do they see? They see the same things I guess you guys are talking about. Uh, I think so. I mean, for one thing, there aren't that many industries that can consume a large amount of capital. So private equity has a lot of capital looking for a place to go. Needs so to go somewhere. That's huh. part of the dynamic, uh -huh. honestly, it's just supply. Um, but they're looking, they're obviously very intelligent people looking for good investments. So, you know, I say that lovingly. Um, there are new sources of capital. Infrastructure funds is the category. They have uh, traditionally a little more, um, a lower return expectation, a little longer life cycle okay. uh, in terms of the expectation of their investment, how long they plan to be invested. And um, some of that capital comes from sources like family offices as opposed to um, maybe the traditional private equity investor in a fund. Okay. Uh, but whatever the their particular model, um, that's an emerging source of capital. Now, they like mm -hmm. to buy fiber networks. So they at this early stage in, in the evolution of infrastructure funds, they're very focused on fiber networks. Okay. But in order to put their capital out, they're having to think about how broad a definition should they have around what they uh, consider an appropriate investment. So okay. they're buying companies, they're prepared to invest in companies, um, and that uh, 
the point of it is there's just more capital no, it's an interesting coming point. to the You're party. Money needs a place to go. Money needs a place to go. You can't sit in the bank vault. That's yeah. correct. Um, what You talked a little bit about um, the shift in culture and the employee implications of starting uh, up a new, a new company. It, it, since you've been in the cable industry a while, what mm-hmm. skill sets have you seen change or what, what do people look for? What's a great employee look like to, to Vive? Uh, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I, it, obviously, it depends on where and at what level in the organization. And that Technical sort of versus customer service, for yeah. instance. Yeah, but um, I think for us, and, and, and it's challenging. Um, I was having a conversation with someone today about the lack of um, employable humans in this country right now. I mean, it's, it's, it's really remarkable it's a, it's how quickly right. we've completely absorbed. Right. The workforce, uh, potential workers. I know. hear companies say this all the time, inside and outside of this industry, that they can't find. Yeah. You run into that? We do run into it. We find it challenging to hire people, and we have the added challenge that we have to ask them to come from wherever they are to a place that they're not likely from. <laughs> That's true. I hadn't even thought about that. Uh, because the local pool is only so deep. So deep, right. Ah, okay. Now, just as a as a sort of an aside, but an example of that, this, if I, I may have my facts slightly wrong, but I think I'm right. Uh, the city of Tulsa is offering $10,000 to anyone who will move there. I've heard, I didn't know if Tulsa was in that group, but I have heard these, these stories, and it's, yeah. it's sort of remarkable, right, that we've reached this point. Truly. I mean, good for us, yeah. good for employees. Yeah, oh, it's a great time you know. to be looking for meaningful work, as they say. But uh, to answer your question, I think what we, what we particularly look for is the energy to really be committed to what we're doing. And that sounds, you know, sort of mom and apple pie, but it's not. It takes a lot of hard work to do what we do. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not for everybody, truly Mm -hmm. it's not for everybody. Um, When we hire more senior people, um, they have to know that they they will not be a desk jockey, as we say, Yeah, (laughs) but you know, there's, there. there's a lot of hands-on work that, yeah. that needs to be done. Um, and a lot of, a ton of customer interface. Yes. Even if your position isn't a customer service. Correct. In title, right? Yeah. And that's always been the case with cable. I think you have all these ambassadors out there in the market. Well, that's right. And, for your company. And one of the things that we had to do, um, and we've uh, changed that, we have a woman named Julia McElwee who runs our call center operation, customer care side in particular. And... Um, you can make a dramatic change with the right people running an organization whose job it is to provide an excellent customer experience. Sure. Right. And if everyone sort of aligns around that, uh, it can really dramatically change the outcome. So um, in our case, we're very lucky to have her as, as one example of a number of people like that that have brought fresh energy, good experience, um, and, and a real commitment to the cause, mm-hmm. and it makes a big difference. Yeah. Um, one other follow-on is you talked about Malone, John Malone, the, mm-hmm. the sort of legendary patriarch of the, of the cable industry. And I've had similar experiences. When you sit down with John Malone, you learn something. But what have you learned from, I mean, pick anything from, from hanging around the doctor? Uh, well, it would be nice to, to be able to absorb this kind of thing and then put it to work. I'm not sure it's quite that simple, but his calm uh, but confident intellect is is really impressive, I have to say. I don't know if you've had that experience. He 
must spend a reasonably large amount of time really thinking about where things are going yeah. and um, you know the various forces that are coming together. I can remember, um, I can't even tell you how long ago it was that long, but maybe 20 years ago, um, maybe more. At the beginning, sort of the era of the fangs, so the Amazon, digital disruptors, right? Yeah, and he mentioned to us. Um, I think we were having lunch somewhere, Bill and he and I, maybe someone else. And he said the companies to watch out for are not the phone companies. Really, and this was at the early stage of some of these, the Facebook, yeah, crowd. Yeah, yeah. I because the, of their their intentions, you know, to him. Uh, were more visible, say, in Amazon, were more visible than they were to us, who we thought, you know, we, wow, we can order books online, you know. Right, <laughs> right. No. Um, it's come quite a distance from that. And I think he, you know, I hope I'm giving him credit where it's due, right. uh, sensed or saw that that was, you know, sort of the end game. The poetry of your business, I think, and this relates to that opening gambit about the Peter Frampton album and how there was this communal, you know, a, appeal to it. And it's clearly the media world is very fragmented these days. But um, I've got to believe in some of your communities, you've you've brought a level of uh, connect connectedness, I guess maybe mm-hmm. that didn't previously exist. I'll just kind of throw that out there. And I mean, do you sense that um, connected? Around our brand and our presence there, or just sort of technically connected? I think sort of having access to what the guys in the big markets have access to. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you're not – rural America in some markets is a second-class citizen with regard to telecommunication. Yes. Not so where you operate. Certainly we try to make it not so. Yeah. Um, I think for the people in particular that really need the service – and don't want to have to leave their town or their family or their, you know, um, or want the, to run a business, the home they grew up in, or right. the community that they're in, or their church, or their whatever it is um, that binds a person to their community. Um, they are very frustrated when they have to run their business or run their life with substandard products just mm-hmm. because they're not important. Um, so. You know, we do. We work very hard to not only provide the service that they're looking for, but make it reliable and make the customer experience good. Um, when you're a nurse and you do research online in the middle of the night, you don't care if that's the maintenance window for the telecommunications industry. Well put. You want your internet to be up and running. Right. And you know, we hear from those people rightly and try to course correct around. Wow, you know. We make the presumption sort of coldly that we can take the network down for 10 minutes at 2 in the morning and it doesn't affect anything. Well, it does. And it does more and more all the time. What's fun about what you do beyond the, you know, return on investment aspects and the, you know, the the sort of satisfaction of building a business? What what do you like about this business? Uh, You know, for For me personally, it's probably different than even my colleagues in the company. Um, You know, I have the the immense honor and pleasure of being on the board of C-SPAN and NCTA and the Cable Center and these organizations that are largely populated by the most prominent Mm -hmm. operating people or programmers in the country, in the world. And uh, they're personal friends of mine and have been for a long time. And they started up 
personal friends of Bill's, uh, Bill Bresnan's, and I got to run around, you know, dragging on Bill's coattails uh, for years, and um, and it continues. So we, and and even beyond that, with the Cable Center, we launched the uh, Bresnan Ethics and Business Award, an annual award that's part of the uh, Cable Hall of Fame uh, week or days, and. Uh, and, and I've been really pleased to see that the recipients of that award take it really, really seriously. I mean, in tears, telling you it's the most important recognition they've ever gotten in mm -hmm. the industry, that kind of thing. And they're wonderful people who deserve to get that award. And I'm, you know, I'm personally really proud that people appreciated Bill enough to actually name it right. for him right. and present it sort of in his honor. Your former boss. Yeah. I I always I, I don't always, but I like to ask people about that. Do you think that level of um, uh, personal investment in the industry is unique or different in cable? They, had you stayed in the banking business, do you think mm -hmm. you'd you know they have their own Hall of Fame? Perhaps do you think it's really that material materially different, industry to industry? Is cable that special? I guess is my question. I. I think it is, but I'm seeing it from this vantage point, right? Yeah. But, you know, we're in the entertainment business, sort of loosely defined. I think we like to throw big awards shows and give people, you know, the honors that we think they deserve and that they crave maybe on, in some cases. But um, other industries do that in different ways. I think there's, you know, there's a museum of, you know, industrial engineering. It's not Hollywood, but... You know, yeah. you're recognized. Um, so, well, someone once told me that one reason the cable industry tends to recognize its own is that historically it's forever had antagonists and, and enemies. This industry had to fight broadcasters, yes. telephone companies. Now there's the sort of new onslaught from digital. And um, I think it does a good job of reminding people, if you will, of yeah. something important is going on. Yeah. And, I mean, back to your earlier point that being that we could lock arms and fight a common enemy yeah. without having to worry about each of us being the other's enemy at the same time, right? Um, you know, it's, it makes it a different dynamic. You know, it's the three musketeers can sort of go at it and say, you know, all for one and one for all, yeah. and fight. You know, whether it's regulation, whether it's um, you know a, a common competitor, or a new mm -hmm. technology, or whatever it might be. So that. Whether that will continue or the extent to which it will continue, I think, is a little it's, bit up for grabs. It's lasted but, so far, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, uh, Jeff Damon, this has been great, uh, explaining the story of Vive, but also offering some impressions about the, the industry at large. So thank you very much for spending some time with us. Thank you very much for having me. For the Cable Center and the podcast series, I'm Stuart Schlott. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Financial Leaps of Faith. Part of the Cable Center's podcast series, Stories from the Head End. For the Cable Center, I'm Diane Christman. The Cable Center is a nonprofit industry organization that connects people and ideas to advance innovation. Today's podcast was produced by the Cable Center and made possible through generous underwriting provided by the Cable TV Pioneers. Supervising producer and writer is Leela Kakoris. Please join us again soon.